Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Bala, and we're going to be talking about his paper on the sensitivity of tropical monsoon precipitation to the latitude of stratospheric aerosol injection. Welcome to the show. Uh, hi, hello. Yeah, I'm Bala. Uh, can you can you give me your full name? Because you're known as Bala, but I want to make sure that everyone knows how to pronounce your full name, as I've read it about 50,000 yeah. times and never been sure how to say it. Well, yeah, my full name is Govindasamy Bala. Govindasamy is my first name and Bala is my last name. Yeah. So, you know, but everybody, just for, you know, make it simple and easily addressable, you know, I've been known as Bala for a very, very long time. So, and I can see exactly why that is. It's very much <laughs> easy to pronounce. So, you've done this paper with your co-author. And could you give me his name? That's also yeah. <laughs> about eleven syllables. So, you can have a go at that for me. His name is also I know a little longer, like Krishna Morgan. So, he was a postdoc with me for almost uh, you know uh, three, four years, and. Uh, we worked on, uh, you know, almost three geoengineering papers. And this was the last paper that, you know, he wrote with me before he became an assistant professor in a university in India. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk to me about the reasons behind the paper? Why, why did you, what were you interested in, in investigating? Well, you know, I actually, you know, I've been interested in this problem Ever since, uh, you know, if you remember, Alan Robach published a paper in 2008 using a climate model. They showed, you know, the rainfall in the monsoon regions could be severely, you know, affected by stratospheric aerosol geoengineering. So I have been kind of interested in understanding basically, the, you know, the physical, what I would say is, you know, what are the, are there, you know, it really, is there a fundamental reason and how those, uh, you know, the, how does the physics actually work in the case of, you know, monsoon, you know, re- re- reduction in monsoon rainfall, I think. So, you know, over the years, you know, now almost it's 13 years. So recently you may be aware that, you know, if, uh, you know, one hemisphere is given certain amount of uh, forcing you know, more than the other hemisphere, and, you know, we call this as inter-hemispheric asymmetry, then it could actually move the ITCC and the tropical rain, you know, the rain. So that is how, you know, we have been actually, we have, you know, this is not only unique to stratospheric aerosol geoengineering, you know, it can happen because of even tropospheric aerosols or, you know, if you put an ice sheet in the northern polar region, the ITCC could be affected. Anyway, so, you know, that's how my interest anyway originated. Since anyway, we live in the, in India, you know, in India's summer monsoon rainfall is, you know, extremely important for the agriculture and the economy of the country. So, you know, understanding, you know, how monsoon actually even from one year to the other year and how it changes from, you know, today to the end of the 21st century, you know, these are all very, very important problems for, uh, you know, the agriculture and uh, the economic activity of India. So, since I'm sitting in India, um, you know, I've been kind of fascinated by, you know, what drives the monsoon and uh, what causes the changes to the monsoon. So, anyway, you know, in some sense, I've been involved in looking at the long-term changes, uh, you know, that could happen to the monsoon in the 21st century. And also, you know, I've been also, you know, fascinated by, you know, the historical changes in monsoon. 
So anyway, so that's how broadly my interest in monsoon is the main reason to look at this problem. But also, you know, I've been kind of uh, working on geoengineering now almost 20 years. So it, it's a natural you know, question for me to ask. Even longer than me, I might add. So I'm interested in a couple of things. So you mentioned monsoon disruption. It, to my mind, monsoon disruption has almost become like a trope in geoengineering, right? So the it's commonly assumed in the popular press that monsoon disruption is going to be a problem. But I'm not sure that that's actually the case in realistic geoengineering scenarios. And you're describing a, a geoengineering scenario, as far as I'm aware, where you're looking at an asymmetric injection into different hemispheres. Now, can you give me an idea of why anyone would do that? I mean, it doesn't seem a practical geoengineering solution, and it's not really surprising that it would be disruptive. So why do you think that it's worth studying this? Well, you know, let me, uh, I think that's a very interesting question. Yeah, I agree with you. Suppose, you know, you put the aerosols, uh, you know, if you inject the aerosols at the equator, you know, what happens is in the same uh, paper, in the same paper, actually, we do also look at the equatorial uh, injections. In that case, what happens is, you know, there is a fair amount of symmetry in, you know, the aerosol distribution between the two hemispheres. And so the you know, although monsoon is slightly reduced, you know, because, you know, there is a simple rule of thumb that if the climate system warms, generally the hydrological cycle becomes active. So if you cool the climate system, the hydrological cycle would, you know, slightly weaken. So you do see that in the equatorial injection case, right? So that is a kind of broader, you know, global scale phenomena. When there is a cooling, the, you know, the rainfall in most places actually decrease. Now, for the monsoon, I mean, as you rightly put it, I think, you know, the asymmetrical forcing between the two hemispheres is very important. And, you know, I mean, as I said, you know, only in the last decade or so, uh, you know, several people, you know, several folks in the U.S., uh, you know, Doug McMartin, say, Simone Tilmes, Ben Gravitz, and several others, you know, they have actually, you know, studied, you know, what is called, uh, you know, I mean, basically injecting aerosols at multiple locations, so that you avoid this asymmetry when you do this and you can avoid this. I agree with all of that and I definitely agree with that. But I think, you know, what, you know, before they did all this multiple point injections, there was, you know, set of almost 42 simulations conducted. Actually, you know, the, the simulation data that I have used is not my data. The data that we have I used is actually, you know, it comes from Yankar. So there was a study before this, uh, you know, simulation of multiple location, you know, injection at multiple location. Basically, this this study was looking at the single point uh, injections. And uh, so there were actually about 42 simulations in that. It's called Yasoto injection matrix simulations. So I was actually curious to look at, you know, how bad the, you know, if you do, let's say, injection at 15 degrees or 30 degrees, north, what could be the worst scenario? And I just wanted to look at the numbers because quantification is very important. And, you know, in India, for example, you know, we we have this local agency called the India Meteorological Department. You know, it defines, you know, deficits of the order of, let's say, minus, I mean, 10%, you know, if there is a reduction in summer mean monsoon rainfall in India, we typically call that as a drought year, right? So I wanted to see whether injecting aerosols, let's say at 15 degrees or 30 degrees, would lead to 
in the climatological mean, you know, above this threshold of, you know, 10, 10%. I mean, that was my really look, you know, I wanted to look at the numbers. So that's why actually we picked up this, uh, you know, these uh, selected simulations from this uh, SO2 injection matrix simulations. And we basically looked at, uh, you know, how the global and regional monsoons would actually respond to this. You know, in a, in a way, it's kind of quantification of, um, you know, the monsoon changes for, you know, injection at specific location. Because, you know, I mean, I know even though these simulations, they're sitting, you know, at the NCAR repository, you know, people have looked at this, but they have looked at really mostly the, you know, the global scale features. So we wanted to, you know, specifically focus on the tropical monsoon regions. You say you want to analyze other people's simulations. So is this data that's just been sitting in the output of model runs, but has never been used? Well, I think, you know, it was used, but I think, you know, right after these simulations were conducted at NCAR, then, you know, the Glenn simulation and also the other multiple point, you know, injections were actually done. So what happened is, you know, this data was not really extensively analyzed, I would say. So people immediately moved on to this, uh, you know, looking at this, uh, you know, multiple point uh, injections, right? Um, but now I was very specifically interested in looking at the quantification of the monsoon rainfall changes for asymmetric forcing. Yeah. I mean, you might say, you know, we are not going to do it. I mean, that's a different story, but I really wanted to see how bad it could be. So they deliberately picked a data set which is designed to give the maximum monsoon disruption. Is that correct? You're trying to almost create the way. worst possible outcome. No, not only worse. I also looked at, you know, we also looked at the other, uh, you know, when injections were happening in the Southern Hemisphere, when, you know, India could slightly benefit. You know, we looked at both. We were basically looking at injections at uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, at the equator, and also the Southern Hemisphere. So Pete Irving came in to the podcast recently and explained the difference between the fast and slow climate response. I feel that's really fundamental and it's something that people perhaps have an understanding of the effects of, but don't necessarily fully understand the effect. So if you could um, go through and explain why on this fundamental physics level that you get this change in the um, situation in the atmosphere that gives you these two different fast and slow climate responses to carbon dioxide versus solar engineering to really give a deep down dive to why these precipitation changes are occurring, that'd be very helpful. Yeah, but Andrew, that is not the point of this paper, I believe. I mean, I don't think we have discussed really explicitly, you know, we have not really isolated the fast and uh, slow response. But, you know, if you really want me to explain that, I could do that. This paper basically looks at, you know, I think, let let me explain, you know, what type of simulations we were actually looking at. Then we can actually come back to this fast versus slow response. So what, you know, these simulations, baseline simulation is basically RCP, 8.5, 8.5, you know, the, one of the uh, high emission, uh, you know, scenarios where, you know, the climate change could be as high as about five to six degrees by the end of the century. So in these simulations, what has been done is that, you know, so you have that baseline simulation and on top of that baseline simulation, around year 2040, so basically, let me explain, there are three types of simulations. One is, first of all, in terms of, you know, putting aerosols at different, uh, I mean, injecting aerosols at different uh, latitudes. 
So the experiments were carried out at, I think, minus 50 degrees latitude, minus 30 degrees, minus 15, and then zero, then plus 15, 30, and 15. So, and then there were also, you know, injections of different amounts, you know, the, the simulations, there were some simulations with the six teragram of uh, SO2 per year. Then there were another set of simulations with eight teragram, and then another set with the 12 teragram. And also there were simulations at different heights in the stratosphere. So there were some simulations at uh, you know one kilometer above the tropopause, and then there were simulations at uh, five kilometer uh, above the tropopause. So we picked up specifically simulations which had actually high amount of uh, aerosol injections because the higher amounts were needed to offset the warming you know, in the RCP 8.5 scenario. So we picked up basically the 12 teragram of SO2 per year simulations. And these simulate, I mean, these simulations correspond to basically injections at five kilometers above the tropopause. And we also looked at, uh, you know, we didn't look at the injections at 50 degrees north and south because the lifetime of the aerosol in the stratosphere is very small, you know, when you actually go towards the, you know, polar region. So we basically, that's why we, you know, okay, let me recap. I think, you know, I have, we have looked at the simulations where aerosols are injected at five kilometers above the tropopause, right? And basically 12 teragram of SO2 per year and simulations where injections were, you know, carried out at uh, minus, you know, 30 degrees southern hemisphere, 15 degrees southern hemisphere at the equator and 15 degrees north and 30 degrees north. Well, what I'm trying to understand really is the the kind of the modeling effort that you've undertaken. So if you could give me an idea of the model that you used and the total number of model runs that were that were done. I, I know it didn't it wasn't it, it was a reanalysis paper, so you weren't actually doing the original modeling. But if you could give me an idea of the total number of runs that you did, and, and were they all at this high emissions RCP 8.5 scenario, or did you also model some less aggressive emission scenarios? I mean, as I said, you know, it's called a matrix simulation. So, you know, that itself, you know, there is a, it's a basically seven by two by three, which is actually 42 simulations. So the repository actually has 42, uh, you know, geoengineering simulation. And out of it, we picked only five simulations to do the analysis because the reason we picked up five is we wanted to, first of all, take the simulations where the aerosol provided enough cooling to offset the warming, you know, from CO2 emissions. I think that was the reason why we chose, for example, 12 teragram per, you know, SO2 per year, as well as five kilometers above the tropopause. You know, so those were some, there were some reasons why we actually chose those five simulations, right? So these five simulations are, as I said, basically, yeah, I think I have, I have anyway already explained, that is five kilometers above the tropopause, 12 teragram per year uh, SO2, injections at uh, 30 degrees south, 15 degrees south, equator, and 15 degrees north and 30 degrees uh, north. And what we find is these simulations, all, all of these five simulations, they were very close to offsetting the warming in the RCP 8.5 scenario. Because you know that's what you want, you know, that's where the broader objective of doing geoengineering, right? And then, so what the idea is this, that, you know, you have, you are about to, you know, almost fully you are able to offset the global mean warming. Now, is that fine? 
at the regional level it is not i think that is the idea from this game so i want to just draw you on how you select these five scenarios out of the matrix of 42 what was it that made those special and interesting because obviously when you're whittling down scenarios or whittling down any evidence base people can look at that and say well that's cherry picking and it's it's not always cherry picking but you want to make sure that you can justify your methodology yes. so i just want to yes. go through how you did that yes exactly i think the idea was basically to select the simulations where the global mean surface warming is nearly offset by this injections so you choose the simulations where the amount of aerosol injected is larger as well as the aerosols were injected at a higher altitude because i mean i think many of us know right you know if you inject the aerosols at a higher altitudes they stay there in the stratosphere for longer time because you know it takes a longer to sediment right so they stay longer so that's why we did not choose the simulations where the aerosols were injected at 1 km above the tropopause instead we chose the simulations where aerosols were injected at 5 km above the tropopause and then we did not also choose the 6 teragram so2 per year or 8 teragram you know so2 per year simulations instead we chose 12 because you know that was the you know amount that would offset the global mean warming in the rcp 8.5 scenario around the mid century So basically you're looking for scenarios where you have a particularly aggressive and particularly long-lasting geoengineering intervention which gives you a strong signal. I wanted to yeah. draw you on the point I mentioned earlier about the fast and slow climate response because that that's fairly crucial to the drying effect, right? So as you move from climate where you have uncorrected global warming you will have a a strong cooling effect as a result of the geoengineering aerosols but you'll have a disproportionately strong drying effect so you get more drying than you you get cooling it's an interesting effect and i think it's poorly understood so could you just briefly give us the physics behind that yeah okay yeah let me go back to yeah i think a very interesting question fast and slow response uh you know let's say you take uh, for example co2 right you put in the atmosphere so basically we all know if you give enough time the climate would change right so how i think uh, let's take a very simplistic framework here one is you know what is the effect of putting co2 just putting co2 in the atmosphere i think that is one and then, then eventually what happens is co2 leads to surface warming right now because of the surface surface warming there could be consequences so the fast and slow framework actually kind of separates these two in the case of slow response everything that happens in the climate system is related to cost or caused by the surface warming right and the fast response refers to the changes in the you know atmospheric temperature profile or wind or water vapor purely to the addition of co2 before the surface temperature change you know the surface temperature temperature changes i think that's the whole idea so basically you separate your response into two components one related to just the you know forcing agent and the other one 
related to the temperature change caused by this forcing agent. The changes in a directly related to forcing agent is called the fast adjustment. And the changes in the climate system, you know, for example, you know, if you warm the surface temperature, precipitation is going to change. So the changes that are related to that surface temperature change, they are called slow response. That's all. You know, this is, um, I would say, more, uh, you know, for scientists, for us to kind of you know, understand. And, you know, first of all, you know, it's a very complicated problem. So we wanted to kind of simplify by separating the response into just two. But, you know, in reality, of course, you know, it may not be as simple as this. But this is one way we can actually understand the, let's say, the difference between different, I mean, forcing agents. For example, I can tell you, in the case of, let's, let's look at the surface, you know, the slow response. The slow response could be caused by either aerosols or it could be caused by CO2 or it could be caused by any force, you know, ozone changes or anything. And we know from our, you know, numerous uh, numerical modeling studies that the slow response, you know, which is, let's say, if you define that as a change per unit change in surface temperature, it is interestingly independent of the forcing agents. Okay. So this helps us to under, you know, the understand the effects of different forcing agents. Right. On the other hand, the fast adjustment, which is, you know, which is basically the, you know, rapid changes in the system associated with these forcing agents, that seems to be dependent on the, you know, forcing agent. You know, the fast adjustment could be very different between CO2 and aerosols. But the slow response, you know, it's independent of the forcing agent because, you know, it is, it's purely only on the surface temperature change caused by these uh, forcing agents. So to give you an example, let's say, you know, put, let's say, take the example of CO2. As soon as you add CO2 into the atmosphere, what happens? We all know that, you know, CO2 acts as a blanket, right? So as soon as you add it, you know, the moment you add, I can tell you, it's not going to change the surface temperature, but it's going to trap the IR radiation, you know, that escapes to space. This is the really fast, ultra fast effect, right? Now, this trapping of IR radiation immediately actually leads to a reduction in precipitation, okay? On the other hand, you take, let's say, aerosol. Now, as soon as you add aerosol, right? In the case of, let's say, sulfate aerosol, take the case of sulfate aerosol, right? It basically blocks the, I mean, what you are doing is, you know, it reflects more sunlight to space. But it's okay. But, you know, it doesn't do anything as far as atmosphere is concerned. Uh, it does not change the temperature structure of the atmosphere or anything like that. So because of that, there is hardly any rainfall change in association with this fast adjustment for reflective aerosols. Okay. So that is why if you add these two together, the fast adjustment to aerosols and fast adjustment to CO2, because of the you know, suppression of precipitation from the fast adjustment of CO2, when you combine these two, there is a reduction in precipitation. But you think about the slow response. Suppose you have added aerosol in such a way 
they let's say they you know the global mean surface temperature is offset right now which means the slow response as it is independent the slow response you know let's say increase in precipitation due to co2 increase is fully offset by slow response in precipitation for aerosols so ultimately what decides the precipitation suppression when you do geoengineering is really governed by the fast adjustment to precipitation from actually co2 forcing because the aerosol does nothing pretty much very close to zero change in precipitation from aerosol addition i am not sure whether you know this is uh, easily understandable but uh, i have tried my best yeah well it's not easy to understand which is why i've asked you to repeat the explanation that pete irvine gave and hopefully if people listen to podcasts regularly they'll get the same thing from two different people and they'll understand it but it is a really crucial effect which is why i wanted you to go through it yeah. so you've explained how you've gone through this process of selecting these scenarios could you comment on the realism of the scenarios could you imagine any kind of political situation or social situation where the uh, interventions that you have monitored or, or analyzed how could they ever actually happen or or are they purely just geophysical playing yeah no i want to know first of all scenario do you mean by geoengineering scenario or are you talking about the rcp reference scenario that we have used Well no we we'll take the RCP background as given I mean I think there's obviously quite a lot of criticism of certainly the higher emission scenarios but we don't really need to worry about that what I'm interested to know is do you think that the geoengineering interventions that you've analyzed in the paper are in any way realistic or do you think if you pick these only because they are the most geophysically interesting scenarios without any hint of political realism yeah you know yeah and you know I have been kind of mostly you know ever since my first paper in 2000 on geoengineering you know they have been more you know i've been mostly looking at the science of the problem from really forcing response kind you know perspective you know i understand there is you know practical side to this that is the geoengineering but i think you know we scientists have been actually looking at you know the response of the climate system is it the same you know given let's say same amount of you know radiative perturbation by the forcing agents you know does the climate system respond in the same manner and we know it's not the case you know for example the precipitation for the same temperature you know same temperature change we know the aerosols actually give you know different precipitation response compared to the co2 right and similarly black carbon aerosol if you look at it you know its behavior you know even if you have the same radiative perturbation as co2 you know its response particularly in hydrological cycle you know it's very very different so you know i have been really you know very interested in actually looking at from that perspective you know given very different you know sources of radiative perturbation to the climate does the climate system so this is you know this is a, in some sense a pure science problem for uh, you know the, for the study of climate change now as you said it has a practical relevance which you know basically immediately quickly draws attention so uh, you know so for example you know we have you know i have worked ever since our first paper on geoengineering by you know dimming the sun you know we we have looked at other interesting you know aspects like for example there is a concept called efficacy of forcing you know which is basically let's say we all know for example in the case of co2 co2 traps ir radiation right 
Now, let's say that is a one watt per meter square. Now, so that is a warming in a forcing, right? So for the same forcing, if you do with, uh, let's say, solar dimming, solar dimming of, let's say, one watt per meter square, do you get actually the same surface warming? Or is the change in the hydrological cycle, is it the same? Or does the carbon cycle, carbon cycle components, you know, like, uh, things like carbon fluxes and carbon stock, do they respond in the same way? You know, this has been actually my primary driver for my research. In fact, you know, we have, in my research, we have computed the efficacy of not only solar forcing, we have calculated the efficacy of uh, sulfates, you know, which is very close to solar, uh, you know, irradiance or whatever. We have also worked on, you know, the efficacy of uh, black carbon, the efficacy of uh, methane, things like that. And th that, is, that is where, you know, my main driver for, the, you know, the, the scientific research. But interestingly, it, you know, it does actually, in some sense, I would say, it has applications when you look at two forcings like CO2 and solar irradiance or sulfate you know, the comparison of them as well as, you know, combining them. You know, in geoengineering, you are basically using, you know, forcing from one of, you know, the CO2, and you are actually trying to offset that uh, forcing or, you know, the warming with the, you know, the sulfate forcing, right? And as I, you know, as we have been discussing, you know, because the past adjustments are really different between these two, forcing agents, you know, this is where the, you know, I'm sure, you know, you have heard about many times, you know, the offset of climate change by solar geoengineering is imperfect. So I'm trying to understand what, you know, why it is imperfect. You know, first of all, what are the imperfections? And the second thing is, uh, what is the origin for this uh, imperfections? You know, for example, yeah, I mean, when you offset the global mean surface temperature change, you are not offsetting global mean precipitation. So what is the origin for this? You know, those kind of investigations, that's what, you know, we have been, I've been, you know, my, me and my, you know, group members have been looking at, yes. So you've picked up on the importance of Indian monsoon, quite rightly, because it's an important agricultural region and one where subsistence farming is common. So people have a very direct link to weather conditions and the effect on agricultural productivity. So this is a, has a huge impact on human welfare. But is it possible that the downside, considering these kind of effects, means that the topic becomes overly emotive and people perhaps misread the science as more of a, a critique of a political suggestion rather than simply a scientific analysis of a, a thought experiment, something which no one would ever do? Do you think that the that the presentation of the science gets hit helps or hinders the political debate no i would say it, it does both it does actually i think the you know what is our uh, scientists role here you know we provide the pros and cons right um i don't think we are providing only the cons right we are actually uh, you know for example our uh, you know uh, 20 years back when we looked at this i think the important message was yes you know geoengineering can offset the global mean surface warming, right? I mean, that's a, that's a very uh, basic message, even, you know, in the latest uh, IPCC report. But then, but, you know, then you start with, uh, you know, okay, next is, you know, the offset is imperfect. 
you know, our role is to provide the as much as possible a complete knowledge, right? I mean, that's that's what you know the publication process is. And if you read the paper, you know, you can very carefully see that you know we are not only selectively looking at the northern hemisphere uh, injections. We are trying to understand the signs. Whether you know, for example, in the case of if you do the injection in the southern hemisphere, you know, a northern hemisphere monsoon regions actually benefit, <laughs> right? But the southern hemisphere monsoon regions will suffer, right? So yes, I, I understand that how, how the process works. Yeah. The hemisphere in which you do the injection has a relative drawing, right? Yes, um, exactly. But the, the point I'm making is that these are simulations, not of politically realistic interventions. They're simulations of yeah. interventions that are designed to produce a geophysical effect. And you say that you've picked from the ensemble to ensure that you've got the the most prominent effect to analyze the geophysics. Now, my concern is that when those results are reported in your um, study and then re-reported in the media and then re-described in the popular press, are you not almost setting up for misunderstanding and misrepresentation? Because what you're doing here is picking the worst of the worst, which is from a geophysical point of view, quite realistic and sensible. But that doesn't really, in my mind, foster sensible general debate in the media. And this paper and many others like it have, have suffered from what you might call quite hysterical reporting. <laughs> I wouldn't really call that. I, yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, the reason, you know, some, you know, I, I, Completely agree with you. These are what we would we normally call as idealized scenarios with the extreme forcings. The only justification I can provide you for me to pick up these kind of things is the you know the geophysical noise. I think many times what happens is the climate system has you know intra, you know what we call as internal variability, you know, decadal scale variability, interannual variability. So sometimes if you want to actually get, let's we'll say, really, you know, the deep insight into the science, you know, this is very common in all scientific problems. That is, you know, you idealize the situation to understand the science, right? So that's exactly why we pick up, uh, you know, scenarios, uh, you know, for example, you know, you take, you know, I don't want to only justify myself, but, you know, you look at the entire community, for example, CMIP-6, if you look at it, there is a set of simulations, what we call as abrupt quarter pulling of CO2. It's a highly idealized scenario. I mean, who is going to abruptly in the real world quadruple CO2, right? It's not going to happen. Quadrupling would happen in two, three, two or three centuries, right? But we do that. So that the reason we do that is it provides high signal to noise ratio to understand the science, right? So same way, I think, you know, but I can tell you, once you have established that robustness, I think that is what is important. Robustness, and if you can explain that result from what I would call as physical constraints, then we understand the system better, right? So here, for example, in the case of you know this ITCC movement, right? You know, in the only last I can say maybe about ten or fifteen years, there have been you know tremendous interest in understanding the tropical you know weather systems and uh, you know the ITCC 
behavior. And, you know, I can tell you this particular knowledge is really very, very recent. And, you know, I think two things we need to establish, you know, climate system is, of course, you know, very complicated. So the way I would like to see is, you know, don't get bogged down by the complexity, right? Instead, are there some simple, you know, physical constraints which can actually tell you the qualitative answer? I can tell you the quantitative answer is always going to be riddled with uncertainty, right? Right. First, we need to even understand whether qualitatively we are actually understanding the response of the system. So for that kind of uh, understanding, you always need what I would call idealized scenario. I think you take GeoMIP6, any, you know, many modeling studies, you know, they are, you know, the models are, you know, I think, you know, there is a misconception that models are designed to predict our future. No, I think, you know, I actually would say models are actually designed to understand the sensitivity of the system to perturbations. So in that sense, you know, so we, you know, that understanding will help the policymaking ultimately. But, you know, we can't really, I would say, these are really, you know, just like uh, these are not predictions of the future. Yeah. I mean, I know that's why we call even scenarios. You know, we don't really use the predictions. But I think all these idealized experiments, you you can take a whole look at this, you know, GeoMIP6. Every scenario, you know, people can complain about that. But I can tell you, they were all designed to understand the sensitivity of our uh, climate system because there is a lot of knowledge gap in that to facilitate that you really need to you know design these uh, so-called uh, highly idealized uh, scenarios to understand because i yeah i don't know how do we you know for example you know even we have this let's say scenarios rcp let's say 8.5 2.6 or ssps you know do you know i mean we don't know, for example, you know, which trajectory we are going to take on, right? I think you know, if anybody claims they understand which trajectory we are going to go, I think that will be really foolish. Yeah. How do you think politicians can be best informed by the scientific community in terms of presenting the work in a way which is less prone to misinterpretation and hyperbole? I understand why you want to do these extreme geophysical experiments, which are not uh, designed to be policy deterministic, but how do you make sure that your work isn't misinterpreted by people in many cases who might be taking a rather bad faith position and, and looking for things to misinterpret rather than actively looking to understand? You know, I agree, Andrew. I think, you know, I would say I have no expertise in, you know, let's say how the policy world really works you know there is a lot you know i don't want to get into you know that policy domain which is i can tell you it is way more complicated than i think the complex climate system you know because there are so many actors in that and many times as you said cherry picking read between the lines you know this happens and uh, you know that is what has generated i think controversies in the past, for example, even, you know, if you go back 25 years back, right, second report of uh, IPCs, there was such a big controversy surrounding that uh, 
discernible influence of uh, humans on the climate system, right? So, you know, that is, I'm sure, purely driven by special interests and things like that. That's way complex. And yeah, I, you know, I don't think I can provide an answer uh, like, you know, maybe uh, some good social scientist may be able to give an answer to that, how to prevent that. But I think you understand my point, right? I think, you know, even global warming, you know, whether humans are causing it, it was such a big, you know, issue until maybe a decade back or something like that. Ultimately, of course, you know, the signal has very, you know, strongly emerged. So now that debate, I think, is kind of, you know, it has gone into the background. So I think, you know, what I'm trying to say here is similarly, I think we need to, you know, I don't have any, you know, I would not personally recommend, uh, let's say, that we should do geoengineering. But I think all I'm trying to say is that if you, if, if, you know, all the scenarios are if, you know, it may happen or may not happen. And so it would be better to have, have a very good understanding of, let's say, you know, how the climate system responds to, let's say, geoengineering, not only the, you know, the physical system that we have looked at, you know, there is a whole bunch of um, people who are also looking at the impacts impacts to the, you know, carbon cycle, biosphere, ocean acidification, etc. You know, I, I would say, you know, I have mostly confined myself, I would say, to the knowledge generation, let's say. let's put it this, this way. And I think if I have no, honestly, control over, uh, I can, you know, communicate through journal publication, you know, scientific publication, our scientific knowledge that we generate. But how do how it can be interpreted i think you know this is not my i think expertise yes and i think you know if you look at you know the entire climate scientists uh, you know majority of them you know we always have been providing we have been kind of neutral you know we our role is really to generate knowledge i mean that's number one and i agree communicating it and i think you know many of us you know we stop at communicating at the journal level you know, we don't take the next step of going to the press and very few, like, you know, I have, you know, sometimes gone to the press, but many, many, I can tell you, my friends, they never talk to the press, <laughs> even, even when they have fantastic results, I can tell you that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're talking to us. I think some people might challenge the concept of the political neutrality of science uh, and certainly the more hard left, what you might call woke scholars might suggest that it's a tool of elites to maintain power structures but that's probably a debate for another day i just wanted to at yeah. least acknowledge the political opinions that differ from those that you and perhaps i might hold so i just wanted to drill down into the details of the modeling that you've done here you talked about the scenarios that you've been modeling but you haven't talked much about the model itself so what was the model that you ran on how long did the simulations run for what was the resolution just just gives a little bit of a technical deep dive yeah 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 so this particular model is this, uh, you know, the Yankar Community Earth System model. So this is you know model that is developed at National Center for Atmospheric Research in the U.S. So I think you know the one good thing about this model, you know, I mean, I actually used to work in the U.S. and I was very familiar with this model when I, you know, when I was working in the U.S. But good thing about this model is that you know this is publicly available model. You know, unlike other climate models. This model has fantastic documentation. 
and you know uh, documentation in the sense not the not the scientific part alone it also has fantastic you know user guide and etc cetera, etc cetera. so anybody on this planet can actually download this model and if they have a decent supercomputer you know they can actually configure this model supercomputer and run it so in that way this is a you know publicly available freely available model so you know for my research career mostly you know i have used you know all my life only scientific career i have used only this model uh, this model is very sophisticated you know broadly i can tell you you know it has a atmospheric atmosphere uh, component and it has a representation for uh, land surface vegetation right and then it also has a full ocean full ocean model i think with about 40 layers of you know ocean layers and then it also has a dynamic ice model sea ice model you know climate so these these are the you know real four pillars for any coupled climate you know the so called coupled climate model atmosphere ocean land and sea ice and uh, many models actually although you know there is currently work going on about you know sea ice is very different from the ice sheets that are you know located that are situated on uh, the antarctica and uh, greenland so many models actually these kind of sophisticated models may not have you know the climate how the climate system interacts with uh, the ice sheets okay but anyway let's uh, now you know these models also as i said you know they also have some of them have interactive carbon cycle you know which is basically in the ncar model that we are using you know the model actually has sophisticated land surface model with representation for trees shrubs grassland crops and etc etc so one could actually in this models track you know our emissions you know suppose you put carbon dioxide emission right let me put it in a very simplistic manner today whatever we emit nearly 45% stays in the atmosphere and about 25% is taken up by the ocean and about 30% is taken up by the land so these models could actually explicitly simulate these carbon uptake by the land and you know land biosphere and the ocean so they do that as well these models okay so so now coming back to the model data that uh, you know we have used now on top of this now if you talk to simone from i think she was very instrumental in developing this i mean she and others i think they have developed this you know very sophisticated atmospheric chemistry model in yankar okay so this model basically the specifically the simulations that i have used i mean if i you know so far we have been talking about sort of injection right so what this means is you are basically only injecting so2 into the stratosphere now the so2 actually gets oxidized to you know h2so4 basically droplets of sulfuric acid which is the actual aerosol right now this aerosol once you basically so2 you inject it basically gets oxidized and you know you form very fine droplets of the sulfates those sulfates are the reflecting uh, you know the real reflectors you know it's very very microscopic uh, spheres of uh, reflectors so the model actually does this sophisticated you know microphysical calculation as well as the transport of these aerosols you know with all these aerosols you know once you create them the model actually advects it you know transports it around 
the globe, both in all three three directions. You know, there is a sedimentation process. The aerosol is basically carried towards. You know, if you put it, let's say, put in the aerosols in the equatorial stratosphere. You know, there is circulation called uh, Bruce. I mean, I think Brewer Dobson circulation, which basically carries the aerosols all the way from equator to the polar region, where the aerosols actually slowly descend into the troposphere. So all this, uh, you know, complicated, you know, physical, chemical processes are actually modeled uh, in today's, uh, you know, the models that actually that we use today. Yes. So basically, I think what is important for these simulations were basically this very sophisticated stratospheric chemistry model. And in fact, you know, these models now, they have representation of how these aerosols would be actually interacting with the stratospheric ozone. So you could actually simulate the ozone depletion that, w- that may happen with the stratospheric you know, sulfate aerosols. Yeah. So I think I don't know whether that was, you know, I can go on and on and talk about the mm-hmm. models, but, you know, because they have, you know, I mean, as I said, today's model have chemistry, physics, biology, biology, this, you know, form of photosynthesis in the ocean, photosynthesis in the land. They do all of that. Chemistry in the stratosphere, troposphere, they can do all of this. You know, in addition to, you know, originally in the 1960s and 70s, you know, it started really solving the fluid dynamic situation. You know, you go back that uh, 40 years back or so. So could you put this into context with your other work? I mean, uh, it's an interesting paper with some challenges of interpretation, but I really want to understand how it fits into a broader program of work. And you might want to touch on the role of your department and institution, because you said that you used to work in America, but you're now based in India. I don't think you gave us your institutional background and uh, the kind of context of what you in your research group and your institution as a whole is looking to contribute to the debate. Yeah, you know, I, I right now I'm a, a you know, professor at the Center for Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at the Indian Institute of Science. And, you know, in India, there are very few institutions with atmospheric and, you know, uh, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people in India who are actually looking at climate change from the energy perspective or social science perspective, as well as impacts perspective. But there are very few people who are doing the type of hard science that uh, we do at our uh, institute. Okay. I mean, that's... uh, Now, primarily, what is my center's interest? My center is primarily interested in understanding the monsoon. I think it's uh, hardly about, I think, you know, 30 years old or something like that. So this center was primarily, you know, established to, you know, really understand the Indian monsoon, okay? So some of these, you know, these, you know, listeners may have heard about two important people, Professor Goswami, you know, who is retired now, and also Professor uh, Sulochana Gadgil. You know, they were two, I can tell you, ultra-famous monsoon scientists. Both are retired now. So they basically, you know, started many observational campaigns and uh, also modeling uh, initiatives. You know, they were involved in uh, basically most of the, I would say, modeling or observational uh, initiatives either in the atmosphere, ocean, they are all targeted at the end to understanding the monsoon. I think, you know, that's, that's pretty much 
So, uh, you know, it was, right. I think you know, when I moved here a decade back, I had absolutely no <laughs> uh, background in monsoon. You know, I, I was really very fascinated mostly about the global climate change. So, you know, with time, you know, but, you know, you are, of course, you know, you have fantastic colleagues. You know, I have about 10 colleagues, you know, 10 faculty members in the department right now here. And most of them are working on, you know, one way or other way on some aspects of uh, the monsoon. You know, for example, monsoons interact with uh, the Arabian Sea or the Bay of Bengal. So the oceanographers in our department, you know, they have a lot of observational programs to study the Bay of Bengal and Arabian Sea during the monsoon, you know, monsoon season, how, you know, basically understanding, let's say, the atmosphere-ocean interaction during the monsoon season. But even, you know, I, you know, personally, I was, you know, from my early childhood days, I was fascinated by, you know, meteorology. So, you know, that's one reason I actually pursued meteorology for my, you know, PhD program. And, but anyway, when I returned to India, Obviously, you know, then I, I could actually go back to, you know, what I was originally, you know, maybe I, I could be kind of reorienting myself. So after I moved here, I think, you know, again, you know, I mean, I still have, let's say, put it this way, global perspective. But now I'm actually trying to, you know, I always find it is, you know, the regional things are extremely hard to understand. Actually, You know, it's much more complex because... I think one reason is the constraints actually many times we don't even know the constraints for regional changes. You know, for example, global change, we understand the constraints, you know, it's purely based on radiation, for example, or in the case of, you know, this paper, interhemispheric planetary energetics, you know, we understand the constraints, but when you look at the regional problems, we don't even know the constraints. <laughs> you know, even in this paper, you know, we actually discuss this. You know, when we talk about, let's say, ITCC movement, okay, I mean, it's actually very easy to understand the constraints based on, you know, really very large scale, like you know, interhemisphere. You know, the hemispheres are really big. And uh, so we know the mean ITCC, how it should behave, you know, to the interhemispheric asymmetry. But I can tell you it is extremely hard to understand how the regional ITCCs you know, respond. For example, you look at South Asian monsoon region or you know, its a regional setting is entirely different from North American monsoon or the North African monsoon. So, in fact, you know, in the paper, in our climate dynamics paper, we do discuss this, uh, you know, the you know, if you look at uh, some of those figures very carefully that we have made, the individual monsoon region, you know, they don't respond uniformly. You know, it's not like all monsoon region, the re- reduction in rainfall is minus, you know, let's say 10%. It's not like that. They have very big variation among these monsoon regions. So the regional problem is, you know, much more, I find it actually very hard to understand, I can tell you that, because of the lack of our understanding of constraints that operate in the regional uh, thing. So one thing I can actually, you know, you look at the settings for uh, the Indian monsoon, for example, you know, in the case of you know, Indian monsoon, I mean, uh, the, the Indian Ocean actually stops around 20 degrees or, you know, the, there is beyond, beyond that, north of that, there is no ocean, right? So the basin here is very, very different. If you look at, uh, you know, the regional domain for uh, North American monsoon, 
right? Because North American monsoon, if you look at the domain, it looks like a mostly a ocean domain, right? And also the regional boundaries are very different. So anyway, I think you know, coming back to the monsoon problem. So you know, I have been slowly getting into understanding. So I'm coming from, in some sense, the top down. You know, from a global perspective, I'm slowly coming into this uh, regional perspective. So, in fact, you know, I can, you know, we, we, we looked at uh, some, maybe five, five years back, I remember, I had, a, you know, another postdoc. We did, uh, you know, using the same NCAR uh, model, we did actually a global deforestation and also deforestation in latitude bands. So, we actually got a very, very similar result, you know, for example, if, if you do, deforestation, let's say in the boreal region, right? The results are very similar to what, you know, this paper talks about. Then you are creating an asymmetry, you know, because if you do deforestation in the boreal region, what happens is you are actually pooling the, you know, northern hemisphere selectively. So when you, that means again, the monsoon in India will actually weaken. And similarly, three years back, I had a master's student who looked at the impact of Arctic geoengineering, right? So if you do geoengineering only in the Arctic, what happens, right? So then again, very same problem. You know, you are basically selectively cooling the Northern Hemisphere uh, polar region. So this again leads to the ITCC to move into the... So I think what I'm trying to say is, you know, when you look at some problems, there is a universality here. That is, you know, it doesn't matter what is causing that asymmetry. The climate system response the same way. The monsoon actually responds the same way. I think you know, these are the problems which are really very fascinating to me to see in you know, a commonality between you know, various, you know, the response of the climate system for various uh, forcings, because then your understanding is much, much clearer, right? So, so, you know, mostly I would say ever since I came here, I've been kind of looking at the monsoon behavior on a climate time scale, right? Because when we talk about this, let's say deforestation or Arctic geoengineering or these uh, injections, all of them are, you know, we are really looking at the climate time scale. So, you know, that's what I'm doing right now. I think, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, getting some, but I can tell you most of the focus in our department, you know, I've been focusing on, of course, this long-term changes. In our department, I think, you know, one of Crucial question that many faculty are really looking at is the interannual variability in monsoon, which is also which is really a nightmare. I can tell you, because you know some years you know the rainfall could be you know this is just a you know year to year variation. Some years it could be you know the deficit could be as high as twenty percent at the national level, right? So those years I have seen you know the agriculture you know there is a lot of in many places, many parts of the country, you know, the agriculture fails and the economy actually, you know, the rural economy suffers, right? So I think the interannual variability of monsoon is, it has been in the past a serious, uh, you know, research question. And many of you may know, you know, well-known uh, one, one key you know, interannual variability is driven by this uh, ENSO. You know, when you have Eastern Equatorial Pacific warms, you know, the monsoon actually is uh, the, goes into the deficit, you know, the rainfall actually decreases. So that is one, one, I think, correlation, I would say, you know, are something that drives the interannual variability of monsoon 
very, very well-known driver. But, you know, there are a lot of, I think, people are trying to actually, you know, look at basically understand the other drivers of the interannual variability in the monsoon system in India. I mean, you know, that's where uh, also, you know, understand, you know, you know, monsoon, of course, you know, anything you take in uh, atmospheric science, you know, there, there is a continuum of scale, you know, then, so by that, what I mean is there are also some faculty members who are actually looking at the, within the season, you know, you have variability, right? You know, for example, normally, you know, monsoon rainfall in is high in July, but you could have some year when July, actually, the monsoon rainfall has a deficit, very high excess. So again, you know, try to understand this, you know, intra-seasonal variability and interannual variability. Those are, I think, you know, for today, those are very important problems. I, I think, you know, that's where most of the research in India is, you know, but particularly the, uh, let's say, earth science research in the in atmospheric science is actually going into. And the climate part, I think, you know, we are kind of in India kind of little date, but I think, you know, I'm looking at, as I said, the climatic drivers for uh, monsoon and a centennial time scale. So, and I don't really, you know, there are people in India who look at also monsoon variability over paleo time scale, you know, how monsoon was 8,000 years back or 20,000 years back. You know, looking at, you know, those are paleo studies, you know, linking to paleo proxy, uh, etc. Yeah, you know, I mean, multiple time scales. So I'm, I would say I'm looking at the decadal and centennial scale trends in uh, monsoon caused by, you know, various uh, forcing agents. Yeah. So what, um, uh, how does the Indian monsoon compare to other monsoons around the world? I wasn't even aware about of the North American monsoon until you mentioned it a minute ago. And and if somebody asked me to define a monsoon, I think I'd struggle. So as I've got you on and you're a monsoon expert, I think I'm going to step back from displaying my ignorance uh, and let you step in and tell us all exactly what monsoon is and how it works, because this basic seems to have escaped us in the early part of the conversation. Andrew, I am also not an expert, <laughs> but I can, you know, qualitatively tell you you know, the Indian monsoon is a gigantic thing, of course, you know, there is no doubt about it. You know, this is the, in fact, uh, originally, you know, the term monsoon was only used for uh, the Indian monsoon. You know, to simply put, it's a reversal of the winds, right? That is how, you know, if you take the textbooks, you will see that. Let me put it this way, you know, for example, if you look at the, uh, you know, if you do the meteorology 101, you know, usually you, know, you learn about the you know, what I would call as the climatological winds, you know, in different parts of the planet. In the tropics, you would see that in the northern hemisphere, what we call as the trade winds. I'm sure you must have heard about trade winds, right? So the trade winds in the tropical region, you know, they are, they come from the northeast, right? That, that is the typical winds and that's supposed to be an ideal world. You know, if you have, let's say, no, no heterogeneity or, you know, the let's say land, sea, contrast, anything. Typically, you, you know, the, in the uh, tropical region, the mean climatological wind should be always from the northeast, right? Now, what happens is in the summer monsoon time in India, the winds actually become, they come from exactly opposite direction, southwest. So, and they are also extremely, you know, it's like a jet, very 
you know, the, the high-speed winds. And these winds actually originate from the southern hemisphere. So southern hemisphere, you know, they cross the equator and they travel through the Arabian Sea. And, uh, you know, uh, in their whole journey, they pick up so much water vapor. Uh, so they just dump plenty of rain on India during those four months, June, July, August, uh, September, right? So this reversal of wind, you know, is typically, you know, that is the definition for uh, monsoon. I think that reversal is seen now in, you know, not only in India, I think, you know, even East Asia, for example, there is a reversal of wind. So, but of course, you know, drivers for each of this monsoon region could be very different. I think we have to be very careful about the drivers, right? Now, similarly, in the Sahelian region in North Africa, same thing. There is a reversal of uh, winds uh, during the, uh, you know, during this uh, summertime. So, same thing with uh, North America too. But I think, you know, late, Just to clarify, just to yeah. clarify, is it the reversal of the winds that gives the definition of monsoon or is it the seasonality of the rainfall that results that means something is a monsoon? I'm not quite... Because you get seasonal winds elsewhere, don't you? But are they always monsoons or not? I'll come to that. I think, you know, they, now I think that now what theory is that uh, monsoon is really ITCC movement. I think that that is what the current thinking is. See, for example, let's say, if you look at the ITCC, it actually follows the sun, right? So, the seasonal migration of the ITCC itself is 8 degrees south to 8 degrees north, okay? So, in so, along with this, uh, you know, seasonal migration of the ITC, so the winds reverse. So, now I think the wisdom is that it's just the ITCC movement in the tropical region that are actually associated, I mean, the monsoons are associated with that. Now, what happens in India, Indian region, remember Indian region is very different because we have this huge land mass north of us, right? So, there is a huge heating of the you know, the Eurasia. So because of that, we have this term called continental ITCC in India, which basically what it selectively over this region, the ITCC moves, you know, the Indian, you know, if you look at the Indian tip, it's at 8 degrees north, and Bombay is around 20 degrees north. So the ITCC now over the Indian region, selectively, regionally, it moves all the way to 20 degrees north or something. Because of the land, you know, the huge land mass sitting, you know, right above, I mean, north of uh, India. So there is this. So, so now basically monsoons are even, you know, same thing in the in the case of uh, North Africa. It's just the ITCC moves northward, and that basically when the ITCC moves northward in the summertime, when wind uh, <laughs> wind reversal happens. That's all. You know, the wind is. Uh, different uh, when when the ITCC moves in that's all so right now the you know it's a combination of i would say land sea contrast plus ITCC movement yeah is basically so when the you know when the ITCC goes south you have the monsoons in the southern hemisphere so that's why you know if you look at the, the title we actually put uh, specifically the word tropical monsoon regions 
So the tropical monsoons are really associated with ITCC moving in. That concludes the first half of our interview with Bala. In the next segment, he'll be talking about lots of other general stuff uh, that doesn't typically involve his paper. So it seemed a logical time to break the show. Hope to see you back on the next episode shortly. Bye.